All right, good afternoon, gentlemen. I guess we can start, huh? I don't know if we have a one-bell or a two-bell system. So pardon me if I'm jumping the gun here a bit, but let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all-powerful and ever-living God, we come before you. We're so excited to spend this time with you and with each other, Lord, and we ask you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be upon us and with us and through us and in us. We ask you to open up your sacred word and let it become part of who we are. Let it become our language and our life that we might share it with all the world. And we seek this as we pray to you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, um, my, my little tablet there died, so I'm going to be holding my phone because it has my notes on it. So I'm not chatting or texting or Facebooking. I'm not, uh, I'm not doing with you what I'll do to my wife at the dinner table and sneak it on the down low. But uh, I will be uh, watching it uh, to keep track of where we're at and where we're going. In a nutshell, I'm going to give you, uh, I want to show you Christ as warrior. It's the law of love. It's a total self-gift. So we're going to talk about some, it's going to seem like it's kind of heady. All right, we're going to get into some nitty-gritty stuff in sacred scripture. I'll try to make it as down-to-earth as I possibly can. For some of you, you're going to love it. For some, it might be too much. I apologize up front. But I think the message at the end is very important. As we dive deep into sacred scripture, uh, a truth that reveals itself that becomes very impactful in our daily lives. That's what I hope to get, get to at the end of the day. Okay. So here's the question. Why? Why the cross? You know, why the suffering? Why all the agony? I mean, he's God, isn't he? So then why not just snap his fingers and redeem man? What is the point in coming down and condescending himself? Because you know that's why Satan rebelled, right? Because they were given an opportunity to see that God himself would take upon flesh. I'm not going to serve a man, Satan says. I am better than man. I am an angel. I will not condescend to venerate a man. I will not serve, says Satan. So Christ goes out of his way to take upon flesh, to dwell amongst us, you know, to deal with all the frailties of mankind, to then go to the cross and die such a horrific death. There's probably a point to that. More than just the simple basic redemption of mankind. There's probably something far more powerful going on than what we see at the surface. Because I don't know about you, but I can only speak for myself. In my upbringing, in Sunday school as a Protestant, I didn't get it. It didn't make any sense to me, and I just like tuned out. Even as a Catholic. It wouldn't be too well after my conversion when I encountered Catholic scripture scholars like Dr. Scott Hahn and Brain Petrie and Michael Barber and Tim Gray and so many others. Warren Carroll and Cardinal Daniel and Benedict XVI and John Paul the Great. I mean, these people could crack open scripture. And finally, I could get a clue 
But in the discovery of why the cross, I hope that we'll find something very powerful for us as men. God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. He's an all-consuming fire. That fire is love, right? The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 458 says, The Word became flesh so that thus we might know God's love. In this, love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, I propose to you gentlemen that if you really want to understand the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that you have to go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Therein lies the clue. When we go back to the beginning and study the beginning, we can better understand Christ's death and His resurrection and His love for each of us. To do that, we need to go back. I'm going to start with Genesis chapter 2 because of time. Now, if I could have written Genesis chapter 2, if God, you know, gave me the, the high five, you're in, I would have started Genesis 2 with a quote out of John's gospel. I would have said John 15, 12, quote, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for a friend. That's how I would have started Genesis chapter 2. Because as we're going to see in a moment, Genesis 2 sets the stage for Genesis 3. And what's required in Genesis 3 is fulfilled on, on Calvary. So if we start Genesis 2 with such beautiful words, as greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friend, maybe we can begin to understand where Adam really went wrong. It's the law of love. It's the total self-gift. The answer, my friends, is found in the garden. We have to become the man in the garden. To do that, let's go back to the garden. Let's go back to the dawn of time. Genesis chapter 2, God creates man from the dust. And then he breathes the ruah, the very breath of God into man. Making him automatically unique amongst all other created beasts. You see, man was created on the sixth day and it was good. No, it was very good. Everything else is good. Creating man, that's very good. What does God do? He takes this man and he sets him up in a garden. And then he gives Adam a a task, because he just said it was very good. Now go and name all the creatures. And so Adam goes about naming all these beasts. Automatically we can see several things. According to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, man is given dominion over all of creation, making Adam a king. Because he is naming the beast, he is expressing his dominion over the beast. Adam is in charge of the beast. He is king of this dominion. He names all the beasts. And in so doing, God gives Adam the opportunity to see that amongst all of the creation, he finds no equal. I mean, shucks, just when you think a hairy gorilla is going to be good. You know, it's going to be cold. You can snuggle up against it. No. 
That is not your equal. So God says, it is not good. Whoa, what a contrast. You just said it was very good. Now it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. This was said for our sake, not for God's. You need to know, son of Adam, that you are not like any other creature on this planet, that you have dominion. And your equal is found in your spouse. Because the two of you are made in the image and likeness of God. The two of you make up the image and likeness of God. So what happens? God places the man into a deep sleep, takes from his side, and forms the woman. Now, I believe it was St. Augustine who said this, but it's often quoted from Scott Hahn, and I love to plagiarize Scott Hahn. It's said that God didn't take from Adam from his foot to create woman that he might trample upon her like a doormat. God did not take from Adam from his head that he might create woman to be put on a pedestal and revered, but rather took from his side that that she might be by his side as his perfect helpmate. From the dawn of time, from the oldest historical account of sacred scripture, we have seen man and woman as equals. Man and woman is equals from the very beginning. And quickly it goes astray. But it's first important for us to understand that the helpmate means that. That she is the perfect complement. That amongst all the beasts he found no equal. And now he has his perfect equal. So God has taken Adam. He's formed him. He's breathed life into him. And then he took him into the middle of the garden, which I skipped a moment ago. He takes him into the middle of the garden and he says, You may eat freely. From every tree, I give it all to you. Except for the tree in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For you cannot eat, for the day that you eat of its fruit, you shall surely die the death. It's very important that you understand in the original Hebrew, God repeats himself. He becomes redundant. He says, die the death. It's important. It'll come back in a moment. God says it twice. Die the death. But notice how... This is a positive thing. You may freely eat of all this food. Not you may only eat. And certainly not you cannot touch it. But you may freely eat. But this one tree, you cannot eat. Let me ask you a question. Adam is born without sin. He is created without sin. God is giving him everything he needs to be successful. Everything he needs to live in perfect harmony with God. He set him up with abiding grace, God's very life. He is in communion, speaking face to face with God in the garden sanctuary. He is a king expressing dominion over creation. He is a priest offering up his work, tending and keeping the garden. The very words used in Genesis 2 are to till and to guard. Abudah and Shemar are the Hebrew words. They're used elsewhere in Deuteronomy 8, for example, to refer to the Levitical priests serving in the tabernacle in the wilderness as priests. The ancient Israelites saw their priests as new Adams. They saw Adam as the first high priest serving in the inner sanctuary of the cosmic temple. Creation was the temple, the garden was the sanctuary where God's presence abided and where Adam had perfect communion 
This is the dawn of time. This is Adam's beautiful situation. This, the, the, the cards were stacked in his favor. So, why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, why the prohibition that if I eat it, I'll die that day? What's the deal with that? God loves you, brothers, so much that he is not willing to make you a slave. God loves you so much that if you want to go to hell, he'll let you. You see, God doesn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves to hell. Hell is a place for those who, don't, who want no part of God. The torments they suffer is the utter lack of God's presence. The soul yearns for God's presence. It groans for it. Hell is the lack of it. Hell is God's love. It sounds crazy. I get it. But God loves you that if you want to go there and you don't want no part of Him, He's a loving Father. I'm not going to force you. It's your choice. If Adam was born with this free will, if Adam can choose to reject God, then how could he do it unless there was an opportunity? How could he do it unless there was an option to reject God? I mean, if the garden was like a padded room that you can't hurt yourself in, how could he ever express his free will? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is God's guarantee of free will. There had to be something there that Adam had to make a daily choice. He had to choose, serve God or serve myself. And he had to understand what death meant. I mean, if God says to you, on the day that you eat this fruit, I will kadak you. That's a gibberish. That's not even a word. What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. So if you don't know what it means, it might not have any value to you. So if he's saying to you, the day you eat it, you will surely die the death, Adam had to know what death meant in order for the threat, for the warning to be valid. He had to understand that death was real, possible, and something he doesn't want any part of for it to be a valid warning. So he's given the task to till and to keep, to Abudah and Shamar, to guard like the sword-wielding Levites, protecting the tabernacle in the wilderness, ensuring that things were done appropriately the way God commanded. Well, if Adam has the job to guard, that insinuates that there must be something to guard against. But surely there must be something that you're having to protect the garden and the other people living in the garden from. It's very important. It'll come back to us in a moment. Okay, so then he puts him asleep. He forms woman. The first thing Adam says when he sees her is, Whoa, man, did you see that? She's hot. I mean, she's not like the donkey. Have you seen the donkey? The donkey smells. She's gorgeous. I mean, he's been hanging out with the beast for a couple of days. You know, he's just like, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I mean, you can almost see the excitement. That's Genesis 2, starting in verse 23. And as we round out Genesis 2, there's something very important, very impactful. Verse 24. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked 
and not ashamed. What do, you, what do you suppose they were doing? Playing Yahtzee or, you know, maybe, maybe on Facebook. She's probably on Facebook and he's probably tending the garden. What do you think the one flesh union is and the naked? They're in the most intimate, the most tender moment between a man and a woman. Covenant relation where he gives himself completely to his bride. And she gives herself completely to her husband. They're making love. That's, that's what they're doing right here. They're making love. Now, as I said in the last talk, there's a vast difference between covenants and contracts. A covenant is the exchange of persons for the sake of increasing family bonds. A contract is the exchange of goods and services for the sake of economy. Marriage is not a contract. Contracts can be broken. Covenants can never be broken. In the ancient world, they swore covenants all the time. Abraham swore a covenant oath with Abimelech, his neighbor. Why? So that they would become family. Why? Because supposedly, you're not supposed to stab your family in the back. You're not supposed to go to war with your family, even though we see it every day of the week in our own families. But in the ancient world, they understood that when you swore a covenant oath, it was for life. It was as if he was your blood brother. So Adam and Eve are in a covenant relationship, exchanging themselves personally, intimately, and fully. One flesh union. The very next verse in sacred scripture. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. When does Satan attack us? When we're ready for him? When we're at our strongest? No. He comes in and he attacks when we're at our weakest, most vulnerable, most intimate. Is he not attacking us in the marital bed today? Does he not try to interrupt the sexual union between man and wife and pervert it? Is that not one of his biggest modes of operation? That was his first attack, and it's his most frequent attack. Break it up, pervert it, tear it, tear it apart. Now the word subtle. Now the serpent was the most subtle than any other wild creature. The Hebrew word for subtle there is used in other places in scripture. Some places are made to use it as say a wise sage. But other places are used to talk about the nakedness. So it's a play on words. The serpent was the most naked of all the wild creatures. Well how funny because the sentence before, Adam and Eve are naked and not ashamed. Just seven verses later, they're naked and ashamed. The kind of nakedness that Satan brings into the garden is not the kind of nakedness you want. It's his sin. Corrupting the sin. What is the serpent? The serpent is a beast. Who has dominion over the beast? Who just named all the beasts? Who is the king? Adam. Who's the father in your home? So let's say you had a disrespecting child come into your home, threatening you. Well, whose home is this anyway? Who should have stood up and said, I am the king, you are the beast, be gone. But does he do that? Oh, 
instead of guarding and protecting as he was commanded to do by God in Genesis 2, he stands there and says nothing. Now, serpent. How many of you here went through maybe CCE or Sunday school or whatever, read this story, and when you hear the word serpent, you think of a garden snake? Who's seen pictures of tiny little snakes dangling from trees? That's exactly how I was trained. The Hebrew word here is nahash. The word nahash is used in several places in scripture. Leviticus, the Psalms, for instance. This word, in Leviticus it's used to to mean a fiery leviathan, a sea serpent, a monstrous beast. It literally means a venomous reptile. Revelation chapter 12 tells us it's a red dragon, the ancient serpent. There's a set of writing, it's called the Targums. They predate the time of Christ. You see, in the time of Christ, when the people came out of exile from Babylon, they didn't know how to speak Hebrew anymore. Most Jews lived in the diaspora. They lived in Alexandria, Egypt, or up in Greece, or over in Rome. They spoke Greek. They spoke other languages. They might have spoken Aramaic while they lived in Palestine. Well, every Saturday they would go to synagogue, and the scrolls would be brought out, and they would be read in Hebrew. But there'd be an interpreter there to interpret into Aramaic. Well, the interpreter, is he must have been the foreshadowing of the NFL color commentary guy because he would throw in a few things as he's interpreting. A little license he would take. And he would give us a color commentary. He would add some, some interpretation of the text along with the text. They're called the Targums. They've been recorded. Google it. You can read them for yourself. They're actually quite fascinating. I say this because when you read the Targums for Genesis 3... They actually point out that this serpent had appendages, like a dragon, when he walked into that garden that day. No slithering snake, no dangling little garden snake hanging from a tree. Now, I don't know how many of you are married and how many aren't, but if I were walking down the street with my bride and some big dude came up to us and threatened us, I would absolutely make my wife say something about that. Yeah, what she said. I'll be back here, honey, if you need me. What kind of man would I be if I didn't get between him and my bride? I remember once taking my my daughter for a bike ride. She was four years old. And this big dog come running out of this house, barreling towards us. And I just got in front of her between her and the dog. And I didn't think about it. And I went, what am I doing? This dog's going to kill me. And luckily the owner caught the dog. And I was like, oh man. This, my daughter's going to have to watch me die in front of her. That's what I was worried about. But isn't that our instinct? Why wasn't it Adam's? Where was Adam? We know Adam was there. When Satan speaks to to, to Eve, he uses a very unique English word found only in one state in the United States, Texas. Y'all. Now don't tell anybody I said this, but Satan is from Texas. 
surely y'all won't die. He's speaking plurally in the Hebrew. He's speaking to both of them. So we know Adam's there, but he says nothing. Standing in a garden by a tree faced with an intruder that he should have cast out, he says nothing. And his bride does all the talking. He is king, and he says nothing. He is guardian, and he does nothing. Remember, there are two trees in that garden. The garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. But Adam was born to live, not die. So why didn't he step up? Why didn't he go toe-to-toe with this beast? When Satan says to them, Surely you will not die. Satan says it once. Remember I said God said it twice? In the Hebrew, Satan says it only once. What's the difference? It's only a few verses in between. What's the difference? When God says it, he means your soul. When Satan says it, he means your flesh. Surely you won't die. You have a choice. You either eat the fruit and kill your soul, or I kill your flesh. Your flesh or your soul. Your choice. I don't care which. I'd rather you kill your soul. It's permanent. Your flesh is transient. So the, 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 the threat is weak. It's shallow. But Adam, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. You see, he had recourse to life in the tree of life. Isn't that why God put it there? Maybe he knew. Maybe God was in on something. Maybe he had a private knowledge of what might happen. And so he equipped Adam with the tools he needed. He needed the recourse to the tree of life. He needed a perfect mate, a perfect helpmate to help him face the test. He needed to be created sinless in order that he might face this dragon. So God set him up. And it's interesting because when Satan says to Eve, quote, he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Did God say that? Did God say you may not eat of any of these trees? No. He said you may eat freely of all these trees. But look how the woman responds. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, when did God say, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die? Eve is slipping. Why? Because Adam is leaving her to do all this negotiating with a big intruder. She shouldn't be doing that. But he's too cowardly to do anything about it, so she's doing it. Only now she's starting to slip. God didn't say you can't touch it. He said you just can't eat it. Also, in Genesis 1, God is referred to as Eloi. 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 In Genesis 2, God is referred to as Yahweh. Genesis 1, God is creating. That's what he does. And Genesis 2, God is fathering. That's who he is. In Genesis 3, Satan refers to God as Elohim. 
he doesn't even dare call him father. Eve refers to him as Elohim. She's slipping. She's now matched the tone of, of this beast. You can sense her fear. You can sense her nervousness. Matching the tone, calling God, not Yahweh, as father, which is how she knows him. But instead of what God does as creator, Elohim. So Satan is getting the best of them both. But again, Adam is silent, standing in a garden by a tree, saying nothing. I'll give you a quick example of what should have happened. Remember the story of David and Goliath? I talked about that this morning, right? Takes his three stones as a boy. Was Goliath not a giant intruder? Threatening the people of God? Did the people of God not have dominion over them? Why didn't they go out and defend God? Why did it take a little boy with three stones to go up and and face this giant? The, The boy trusted in God. And what happened? The head of this giant man was cut off. Well, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And they fall. And then it says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves aprons. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Because God was walking among the trees of the garden. Now the Hebrew word for the sound there is ko. In a nutshell, it means It doesn't mean the snapping twigs and rustling leaves. You guys ever see the very first Star Wars? You know, the one that came out in the 70s, which is actually version 4, not version 1, but I saw it as version 1. You remember the scene where Darth Vader comes out of the smoke in the opening scene to capture Princess Leia? Dun, dun, da, da, dun, da, da. That very sound would make me feel like, oh man, something bad's about to happen. Well, that's the sense we get from God's coming presence into the garden. But in Genesis 2, they walked with God, and they didn't run for cover. Well, what's different? When God comes calling, and you have sin on your heart, you fear his judgment. But when God comes calling and you live in a state of grace, you relish in his presence. It's the sin that makes the difference. So God, the good father, he coaxes his children out. He comes to meet them where they're at. And he coaxes them out of the, of the garden. Why are you hiding? Because I heard you. And I was naked. Well, who told you you were naked? Well... You know, it was that woman, you know, the woman, oh, wait a minute, that you gave me. She's to blame for all my trouble. And you're to blame because you gave her to me. If you'd have just left me with a hairy donkey and a hairy gorilla, I'd have been all right. I wouldn't have had all these problems. You're to blame for my problems, Lord. So God turns to Eve. What have you done? And she says, well... I was beguiled and I ate. Now they're each playing a blame game. Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames the woman and God. But notice the severity in Adam's response versus Eve's. Eve was left helpless 
Eve negotiated. She at least tried. Adam did nothing. How often we as men do nothing. We're the same cowards today that he was back then. Is it any wonder that women are doing everything? Why? Because there's no men to stand up. Because where are we? We're doing everything else. Other than being where we need to be. Me first, starting with me first. Where are we, men? Why aren't we there? What kind of men do we want to be? What do we purport to be? When we stand there and let these women face all of this evil all by themselves, we're the ones called to the sacrifice of self. Not them. Notice what happens next. God starts to dole out penance. First with Adam. To the thorns and the thistles. With Eve. Child pain. Marital friction from now until the end of time. Because Satan entered and they fell, there was a bit of a divorce between the two. No more perfect intimate union. Now it's a struggle. Work prior was a, was a gift. It was love. It was Adam's sacrifice, his gift of love to God, to work in the garden, to bear the image of God as a prophet into the wilderness, cultivating the sanctuary, expanding it for God's people. Now, he's cast out. Now he breaks his back. His sweat drops from his brow into the earth, killing himself to bring forth the bread. Arguing with his wife the whole time. Yak, 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 yak. All that friction. Satan, he gets a penance too. Remember what I said about the Targums and having the appendages? Well, they're removed. And now, he must crawl on the dust, eating dust. What is man made out of? Man's made out of dust. So what is Satan going after? What is he consuming perpetually? Man. Isn't he in pursuit of you today? Waiting to devour you? Rowing about the world, trying to devour souls. But there is hope. Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Enmity. There can be nothing in relation between sin and Satan and the woman and her seed. The Greek version of this text says spermatos, literally seed, sperm, which is unique. This would have raised red flags in the ancient world. Women do not have seed. You have seed. How can the woman have a seed? Because the prophecy will be fulfilled in Our Lady who will conceive and bear a child without a father. For he will, his, his father will be in heaven. That is the seed provided. It is divine. So this is the proto-evangelium, as the ancients called it. The first good news. The first gospel. That Jesus will come. And his mother will bear him forth as Theotokos, bearing life into the world. 
and the head of the serpent will be crushed, kind of like the head of Goliath was chopped off. When you see David and Goliath, you must see what should have happened in the garden. That is what Adam was called to, heroic self-gift. Okay, one last point and then we move on. Right before they leave the garden, they're cast out. Why? God says, well, they're living in sin. We better not let them have access to the, the, free, the fruit of the tree of life, lest they live forever in their sin. But see, God is love. We said that at the beginning. He's an all-consuming fire. Nothing unclean can enter into heaven. Where God is, there is heaven. And unless you're pure love, you don't get to be with God in the beatific vision. So you either leave this earth as pure love, or you go through a purgation process in purgatory. At the end of that process, only your love is left. Hopefully you have a lot. If not, only a little bit of you will be left. But at least that gets to be with God forever. But before he cast them out of the garden, with a cherubim, with a fiery sword, who was assigned to protect them, is now assigned to prevent them from entering in. But what does God do at the end of chapter 3? He kills animals and he makes clothing for them. It's the first animal sacrifice recorded in scripture. He restores their dignity because they're naked and ashamed. You see, they were naked and not ashamed at the end of Genesis 2. And now they're naked and ashamed because for the first time, concupiscence has entered into mankind. And for the first time, Adam could abuse his wife, even if only in his heart, by just lusting after her. And she was born in the image and likeness of God. She has inherent dignity. And she must protect herself, even from her spouse, because she cannot abuse the image of God. Adam is called to the higher task. He must not only protect her, but now he has to protect himself from abusing her and himself. He must avert his eyes lest he abuse her and lust after her. This divorce between them is now really realized. They were so intimate and perfectly united. Now they must protect themselves, hiding. And so God gives them clothing to bring back their dignity until he can redeem them entering back into full communion. So that's the stage we set. All of that was just setting the stage. Now we fast forward. I'd love to be able to go through all the covenants, but let's fast forward. On the night before our Lord was betrayed, there in the upper room, He takes His twelve and He institutes the Holy Eucharist. He takes the Passover liturgy of the Jewish people and He interrupts it. After blessing that cup, the cup of blessing, he interrupts it and he goes out at night across the Kidron Valley up into the Garden of Gethsemane and there he enters into a garden and he starts to become sorrowful, weeping. That used to bother me so much until I could see in God the beautiful gift of divine sacrifice and suffering. Suffering is always redemptive in Scripture. God gives divinity to your suffering. God empowers your weakness by living in it. 
by experiencing it so that he can become intimate with you in your daily life. So he enters into this garden, but unlike us, we squander suffering. I stub my toe and I'm like, oh man, I'm sitting in traffic and I'm just like, come on. When Christ suffers, he uses it as an opportunity. When I suffer, I whine and cry and complain like a two-year-old. I don't use it as an opportunity for great grace. Offering up my pathetic little thing for my grace, my wife, my children, my neighbor, somebody else who desperately needs those graces. Christ uses suffering always and every time for a purpose. So he becomes very sorrowful as he enters into the garden. There, he cries out three times the same thing. Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. As I said this morning, visions of blessed Catherine Ann Emmerich give us an insight into this moment. According to her vision, Satan was taunting him, showing him the cross, giving him the choice. Your flesh or their souls? And are they worth it? Are they really worth it? I mean, if I were to show to you the sins that every man would commit against you ever, and then ask you to die for them, would you be willing to do it? That's exactly what happened. Christ saw your sin. Your sin. And that's not an abstract concept. That's not some intellectual, you know, whatever. That's truth. He saw your sin. He saw the ugliness of your life presented there, taunting him by Satan. These people are worth it to you. You're really willing to be, to be scorched, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be nailed to a tree and drowned in your bodily fluids. That's what you want for them. You're sure. His flesh, your souls. That's the test. What happens? A big, loud, noisy mob comes out to visit him. Da 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 da. And of course, our Lord runs and hides in a bush. Oh, wait a minute. He doesn't do that, does he? He goes out to meet them. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, ego a me, I am. Why is that important? It's the burning bush with Moses in Exodus 3. I am who am, sends you to Egypt, go and free my people. What is the one thing that got Jesus a death sentence? The one thing that gets Jesus the death sentence, it's claiming to be God. That is the only thing that he gets accused or gets sentenced to death for. Standing before Caiaphas. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. That is the one thing. He says, ego a me. So, knowing that they're coming to arrest him, he makes it easy on him. Let's just cut to the chase. I know what you want to do. Let's just go ahead and get that over with. I am. I'm God. They fall back in utter shock from the blasphemy. Because it's blasphemous to claim to be God, according to them. But he is God. Come and take me. 
Peter wields his sword, hacking the ear off the high priest's servant. Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me to drink? What kind of man do you think I am, Peter? You think I'm going to run and hide in a bush because some beast comes out to confront me? You think I'm going to stand there silent or will I cry out, Father, let this cup pass from me. I will not stand silent. As Hebrews says, he cried out with loud cries and lamentations to the one who was able to save him. And he was heard for his godly fear. Adam stands by a tree, silent and does nothing. Christ stands by a tree with the same intruder and shouts out to God. Adam was in communion with God. He merely had to shout out, God, help me. God, help me. I mean, God is not some crazy person, some sadistic master, like, you know, here, fight it out. No, it's a test. Are you willing to call to God when you're tested? Or does somehow you think you can handle it all by yourself? Oh, God, want it? here, God, have a seat. I mean, you keep the stars and the moon, you keep them spinning. I'll handle my problems, Lord. Don't you worry, I've got it. Uh, You're a busy guy. I'm all set. I'll figure it out. How willing are you as a man to be humble and to cry out to God when you need Him most? How willing are you to give your problems over to Him? Adam wasn't. Adam thought he was all alone, apparently. Holy smokes, this guy's going to kill me. I don't want to die. He chose to let the grace die in his soul to save his flesh. I wonder what would have happened if he would have trusted God. What's the worst case scenario? Satan kills him, slaughters him, murders him. He has recourse to the tree of life. I wonder if God would have raised him up. I wonder if we can trust God in his resurrection. St. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that when we enter into the baptismal waters, we enter into Christ's death. And we come out the other side in his resurrection. We put on Christ. We become new men in Christ. So Jesus Christ is there in the Garden of Gethsemane faced with this mob, with clubs, with sticks. And like the cherubim with a fiery sword preventing the way to the tree of life, Christ commands St. Peter in John chapter 18, put away your sword. Why? Because they drag Jesus to the second garden and the second tree. Calvary is in a garden. John's Gospel tells us Calvary is in a garden. Jesus is hung on the tree and he becomes the food, the fruit of the tree of life. Telling St. Peter to drop that sword is opening the way to the tree of life. Why? Because when we go to the tree of life and we eat the Eucharist, we have life within us, as John chapter 6 tells us. You see, I used to think of Jesus being dragged to Calvary like a slave like some helpless servant. Jesus wasn't dragged to Calvary. He marched on Calvary. He was a king leading his army, 
St. Padre Pio wrote to his spiritual director that he sees Jesus in his visions as bearing his cross, leading an army of others bearing their cross. He conquers Calvary. He conquers sin and death. He does what Adam failed to do. The curse of Adam was to the thorns and the thistles. Jesus Christ takes on the thorns. Perfectly taking upon himself the curses of the broken covenant. You see, a covenant comes with blessings and it comes with curses. You keep the the covenant, you get the blessings. You break the covenant, you get the curses. A covenant is witnessed by God. God is empowered to ensure because of who God is, because of his hesed, his covenant fidelity, because of who he is, he absolutely must ensure that you get either curses or blessings based on the, how you keep the covenant. The covenant was broken by Adam. Justice must be paid. Jesus pays it by taking on the curses himself. Jesus cries out in the garden to the one who could save him. Jesus accepts what has come his way when Adam failed to accept it. Eve did all the talking in a garden. Mary does none of the talking, standing next to the tree in Calvary. Only our Lord speaks. She's the new Eve, the queen, the Gibirah. He is the king, the new Adam. From Adam's side came forth his bride. Christ falls into the sleep of death and from his side comes forth blood and water, which is the church, the sacraments, the very essence of life. He trusts in God. He defeats death. He dies. But God raises him up. I wonder what Adam might have done if he trusted in God. We would not be tempted today. We would not have to fight off our concupiscent nature. I wouldn't have to fight off the extra cheeseburgers. And let me tell you, that ain't easy. Not when you're me. I've lost almost 100 pounds. And I'm on my way down still. But man, especially coming to Guam, I have to have a seatbelt extension to get home now because you people feed me too much. Because I can't seem to get my intellect in charge of my passions. That wouldn't have been the case if Adam had done his job. So let's wrap it up. Christ is warrior. Christ is king. Christ is priest, prophet, and king. You're called to be a Christ in your home, in your workplace, in your community. There's no plan B for Guam. You're it. Be the man in the garden today. Trust in God with your problems. When you're faced and you're surrounded by the enemy and he's about to consume you, cry out to the one who can save you and trust him for the result. You bring your attitude, you bring your yes. You give him the actual success. Amen? Amen. God bless you, brothers. Thank you.